And then my dad's like, you look like you want to hit me. I'm just like, I don't want to hit you. Do you want to hit me? And he said, yes. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. Our guest today is AJ Delario, an American writer and creator of the weekly recovery newsletter, The Small Bow. He is the former editor-in-chief of Gawker.com and Deadspin during the mid-2000s, a boon time for New York media and its access to cocaine and free booze. At Gawker, he famously published an excerpt of Hulk Hogan's sex tape, which led to his losing a nine-figure lawsuit backed by maniacal billionaire Peter Thiel and the bankruptcy and sale of Gawker Media. In 2017, AJ became the unlikely defendant in a sensational trial that was ultimately a massive blow to the First Amendment. AJ found himself personally on the hook for $115 million, his professional reputation in the toilet, his sobriety hanging by a thread, facing buried memories of sexual abuse, and a father unable or unwilling to protect his son or help him heal. On this episode, AJ talks about how being on the receiving end of a public shaming can pale in comparison to the shame that burns inside an addict trying to understand how it all happened. Today, we'll hear the story behind the story and how becoming a father himself has changed AJ's relationship with his own dad and the ways in which he's trying to do things differently. Just a programming note, we interviewed AJ twice and spoke to him over the course of three hours, once in July last year and again in late October. His baby son, Levon, was in the background during some of our first interview and later slept on his dad's lap. Hence the baby coos and microphone brushing you might hear. Oh, also quickly, this interview makes references to two 12-step programs that we just wanted to catch you up to speed on for those of you who are not well-versed in recovery lingo, the first being Al-Anon, which is a program for the friends and family members of alcoholics. The second is ACA, which is an acronym for Adult Children of Alcoholics. That's a program for people who grew up in alcoholic and dysfunctional households. Okay, let's hear from AJ. Let's start with where your dad's at now in his life. He's disintegrating, I think is really the best way of describing it. And my mother and I spoke about three weeks ago because they're in assisted living facility in Florida, but she's unable to really care for him the way that she needs to right now. And she sees that there's going to be another step back very soon. He's starting to not be able to keep up with his hygiene and he's just getting confused and he's got this waking nightmare thing that happens to him. I, I describe it this way. I spent half of my life trying to get this person to be my best friend and the other half of my life wishing he was dead. And yeah. right now with his mental condition, it's almost like I'm caught between the two in terms of just like he is incoherent a lot of the times. He's also very vulnerable. And the conversations that I do have with him, I know he's not going to remember. I'm still not 100% 
there in terms of just the guy that I want to reconnect with is now gone. And that opportunity is gone. My parents were very much stick their head in the sand type people. Never really addressed things head on. There was always someone else to blame. There were always secrets. There was always shame. And as, as much as I've you know, gotten out in front of a lot of that stuff, they're still lagging behind. My, the relationship with my mother has completely improved, but she's regressed in this case. She is not handling this or dealing with it. You know, she's going to wait until the last possible minute to, I think, get some extra help or try to figure out you know, how she's going to spend the rest of her life. And that's the thing. As, as an Al-Anon person, I'm trying not to fix this for her, for them. What did he tell you about his own childhood? His mother was a little overbearing, very Italian, very uh, fearful, was always very concerned about trying to control things and, and keep him out of potential danger, wherever that may lie. If she could imagine it, it could happen. So I think he grew up with that and inherited control issues, basically. His father was a very gentle man, a very kind man. And my dad said later in life that he always thought that he was weak. He did not call the shots in that relationship. And I think my dad was ashamed of that probably overcompensated for it and with the way he treated me. When he was 15 or 16, this is obviously in the early 60s and late 50s, he was hanging out at a, at a diner with a couple of his friends and eating a sandwich. And then another kid came walking over to him, slapped him in the face and said, I don't like you, and then just walked out. And my dad just froze and was just sitting there, completely unable to defend himself unable to know exactly how to process this whole entire thing. And it's been something that's haunted him for years, but just never knowing exactly how to even tell that story in a way that doesn't make him sound very vulnerable and incapable of processing. But I can see now a lot of the ways that I think that he became a bully himself because he, he was. He was a bully to me. He was a bully to my mom. He was a bully to just waiters and customer service people. Like I remember being in Baskin Robbins with him. And it was after a Little League game or something. But the teens behind the counter were taking too long. And he just made a scene and asked for the manager or something like that. Or asked for free fucking ice cream. There was another customer there, another guy. And him leaning over to my dad and basically saying, just, you know, that was me behind that counter. I'd come out from behind the counter and, and I'd punch you. And my dad's like, try it. And uh, I'm just this little kid just wanting to get ice cream. And then my dad's angry walk, I can always remember because he was a guy that, you know, was a pusher and a jabber. When he wanted to get out of a situation, you could hear it in his footfalls and the way that he would be so tense and ready to pounce on something. When I was about 12, I was playing in like CYO basketball leagues and the pickup drop-offs were usually done by my mother. And so midweek practice, he's usually not home from work, but I think it was snowy and icy, so he'd come home early. And I was in this, this gym, this concrete kind of gym with a high ceiling, and the door entrance was a, a tricky kind of snap lock. It was very heavy. So they used to have it open and everybody that came and picked up knew at this point, you just open it and kind of squeeze in because otherwise it makes this big, loud banging noise. And, you know, all the regular parents knew that. But, you know, towards the end of the practice, there was this big bang. And I just knew it was my dad. Like I could 
sense it. And all of the confidence just drained from me right then. And then just like it came with that uncomfortability and that eggshell to the situation. Because I knew I wasn't wearing the sneakers that they got me for Christmas, but they weren't broken in yet, right? And I liked my old Reebok high tops. So practice ends and my dad's real gruff with all the other parents and basically just because they don't know him, right? You know, they just like, Here, here's this, this scary Italian man who does not interact with us regularly. And, you know, parents say goodbye to me, he takes me out and we get in the car and we're driving and there's silence. And then there's the window open and I could feel the cold. And he's like, give me the shoe. And I turk it off and then he grabs it and he throws it out the window. And then he says, give me the other one. And I'm just like, I want my shoe. <laughs> please don't, please don't throw it. And he grabs it and he throws it out the window. And standing there in those socks, when we get home, I remember just walking up the driveway and feeling the ice on my feet. And he's in and I get there and, you know, him explaining to my mother why he did it, which was just that we bought him new sneakers. He doesn't have to look like a slob that makes us look bad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he apologized, but he laughed about it. Like it was never knowing where that came from or why that had to happen to that level. And you know, I remember going back to practice the week later and there's my sneaker on the yard of somebody's house. Still like, you know, covered in snow. But, it, you know, it was, it, was, it was things like that. And before that, he was always physically intimidating. He was a regional parts and sales manager for Ford Motor Company. There you go. Classic American. Right. But, you know, I, you would have thought growing up that he was Warren Buffett, right? There you go about it. <laughs> huge, huge. Like that he knew all this stuff about finance and investing and stuff like that. I mean, he read Money Magazine and Forbes. He was not a savant by any stretch of the imagination. Now I realize that he was classic middle management in that way. Whereas like I'm taking orders from someone else and I'm going to distribute those orders angrily, right? And it's my job to make sure everything is running on time. And that's what puts me in charge. And that's where my authority lies. When I get angry and I think everybody gets angry, it's a release, right? feels good. There's a dopamine rush that happens when you get angry. And I think that was what made him feel in charge. I think that that's what made him feel in control. The thing that I recognize in myself is just, you know, when I start to lose my temper and when I start to react and I recognize that my reactions are very similar to my dad's, I now know that it's because I'm scared to death. And I just I cannot get the world to be as safe as it needs to be for my children to exist. And my reaction is to basically yell and scream or just get completely nervous or just something along those lines. And that's what I'm starting to process is just, so. Oh, this is exactly how my father felt at one point. This is why he reacted this way. Now that I'm aware of that, it's basically just, here's something that I need to work on outside of all this to basically make sure that I don't take it to the degree that he did. You have siblings? I have an older half-sister, but I call her a full sister because we're very close. Yeah, growing up, my sister is, is 10 years older than me and was around on the weekends, but not consistently for most of my life. I thought she was a cousin up until I was like 12. So when she would stay over, it would be brief. Um, I never got the full sense of who she was. That was never really fully explained to me. And I, I didn't know exactly just what sort of relationship we were going to have. Because my mother was you know, a little 
uncomfortable, possibly jealous, possibly resentful of my sister, I think. And my father was pretty absent. My sister and my mother both tell this story about when I guess she turned five or six and it was their weekend to have her and they were celebrating her birthday and the birthday just happened to fall on a Friday night. So there were all these kids there to celebrate my sister's birthday. It was obviously not my mother's biological child. And my father said to my mother, let's just do the cake now so I can go out. They did the, the cake and candles and sang, and then he went out for the night and my mother was there to, to deal with the rest. And that was what my father you know, did for the first 25, 26 years of my life was he would go out every single Friday night, regardless of what we had going on in the family. And, and that was just something that I was used to. When I was growing up with my friends, I used to have the sleepovers on Friday night and everyone knew that my dad was not going to be there, but my dad would be home around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. We would have to just... try, try to not interact with him as best as possible. I never got the full extent of what he was doing. We had this group of friends, both at where he worked, and he worked at a Ford Motor Company in, in, in South Jersey as some middle management position. And I, I never got the full report and rundown of just what exactly he was doing all the time. Maybe it was happy hour that extended to someplace else. Maybe he was playing cards. Maybe he was having an affair. I don't know. But my sister told me this story recently about when she was 18, she went to a bar in Jersey and she bumped into my dad. And he was out with his friends and she was just like, he was furious. And he was acting like he was furious because I was there and I was underage. But he was more furious that I had ventured into this space, that it was completely disrupted where he was to turn off and not be a father, not be a husband, et cetera. Right. And hide. Yeah. yeah. I, I never had that conversation with my dad. I don't think he would have been honest to be at all anyway. He just didn't have those tools. He didn't understand why that would be important to me. But a lot of the memories of my dad are walking on eggshells around him growing up and having him not be there on Friday night and having him sometimes, even when he was coaching my intramural teams, if there was a game on a Friday night, he would have the assistant coach do it. There were priorities above us. And I never knew why that was so important. I could guess, and I, I played in father-son golf tournaments with him and just recognized that this is a guy who almost had a, a different life when he wasn't around us yeah. and how confident and at ease he was around his buddies, as opposed to just like when he was at home, that's something that I would have loved to figure out. Part of it is a little bit of a fantasy that at his funeral, someone is going to show up and basically tell me everything. That mystery is going to be solved. I'll never know. I will never know what brought him so much joy there and why that was so much more important than his family at that time. So your mom didn't party with him? No, not at all. And she doesn't have a good answer as to why she put up with it for so long. And she put up with it for a while. I think she had questions. I think she wondered why it was so one-sided. They did almost get divorced while I was in college. And it was mostly because my father had gotten transferred to Florida. And my mother was just not very upset about it. She was just, oh, it'll be great. I'd like to move to Florida. We can just get started on this part of our life earlier. And my dad instead just rented a place down there and commuted from Orlando, Florida oh. to Pennsylvania. 
So he would work for four and a half days, usually come home on Friday and continued to go out and play golf on Saturday. And my mom's basically just no fucking way. And as for a divorce and they were living their separate lives briefly for a little bit, got back together, I think more out of convenience. Nobody wanted to go through the hassle of a divorce. Nobody had the emotional capacity or the the willingness to move on. And it's just as much as my mother was upset and my father was probably a little restless, both of them were way too tired to start a new life. What did your dad look like? I'm probably 5'9". He's probably like six foot and a half, six one. You know, he was, he was probably around 220 pounds. He had that real 80s body, like huge tree trunk legs big hairy chest, was constantly tan, mustache. He was a cross between Burt Reynolds and Reggie Jackson. But he also wore a hairpiece. We'd never say toupee. We'd call it hairpiece. His cousin Johnny, my uncle Johnny, owned a hair salon called John Viscusi Hairstylist. And a good portion of his business most of his life was in toupees, built off of the Sinatra era. And he wore one. My dad's brother wore one. My dad and my uncle Johnny were, were two guys that, that carried the omerta of having a hairpiece. And my uncle Jimmy, not so much. He would take it off at the breakfast table and be like, ah, this thing's so uncomfortable. And just mm. and my dad and my uncle Johnny would be incensed because you're ruining the magic trick. We don't <laughs> want people to know that it's not real. But the, the memories of my dad's insecurity about his hair... I have so many of them. And I remember when he would jump in the pool and sometimes it would fall off and just you know how he would have to be inside for the rest of the day. And I, I just remember when people would ask him about it, how uncomfortable he'd get. But it was also strange because he gave me such a hard time about how long my hair was, when I dyed my hair, all this stuff. And I always took it. And I could have just said, just I'm doing it for the same reasons you are. But yeah, other than that, he was macho Italian guy, but very insecure about his premature baldness. What were you like as a little kid? I, I felt very alone, very uneasy, and very close to my mother and always fearful of my father. I was very into a lot of action figure stuff, playing by myself, obviously, because I didn't have any other siblings around. And then I, I got super into Kiss, the band. I got super into the village people. If you see the connection between two of them, they're both wearing outfits, essentially, and costumes. And then I think I started to just harbor these rock star fantasies when I was around 10 or 11. I would just absolutely convince myself that I was destined to be famous. And I would just find whatever sort of comfort with myself in those fantasies. And it was... Not an easy way to grow up. And I had so many sleep problems when I was younger, especially when I was nine. And that's a lot of the memory of when I grew up was basically just like that anxiety and that trauma that existed from when I was nine years old. I would wake up all the time and just be terrified. I would call it the feeling. It was in my stomach, unable to process anything, was not ever going to go to sleep. The night was going to be never ending. And the only way that I could feel some sort of comfort was if I was near my parents. They had let me sleep with them, I think, a couple times, then just like, you know, got sick of it. I got a mattress next to the bed for a little while, you know, which was all right, cool. And then I was supposed to be graduating to sleeping on my own. But I would have these, these moments 
my mom would usually go to bed last. And I remember when she would watch Saturday Night Live, she would fall asleep on the couch and I would hear the television downstairs. And once I heard like the horns of the ending Saturday Night Live ending, panic. It would just like set me into this tailspin. I was just like, you know, I would be okay if she was downstairs watching it. But if that television went off and she came up the stairs, I would be frozen and locked and just terrified. Now I don't know what to do. So eventually they took me to what I remember as a sleep doctor, which I, I think was a you know a child psychiatrist, child psychologist. And I would go there and he would hypnotize me, which doesn't make any sense to me. And that was always just, that's where the story ended for me. And that was it, that I went to the sleep doctor. My parents said it was because I had separation anxiety. They would tell me like throughout you know my life that I had separation anxiety. It made their summer horrible. It was a tough summer. I also had sleep issues that reared their head at the age of nine. And it started around six, but six through nine were horrible. And in hindsight, as an adult, I'm like, you were experiencing anxiety that was just untreated and you didn't know what it was, but it came out at night. It was awful. I felt like this total, not only burden to my parents, but also I can pinpoint that as like one of the earliest times that my parents didn't know how to help me. When you look back on your sleeping stuff, do you think it was anxiety? Yeah. I remember feeling suicidal at an early age. Those things were very present early on and wanting to hurt myself because I felt so bad and had no other way of doing it. The anxiety came at night and subsequently became depression because I was just like not sleeping, but also, as you said, feeling like I was a burden to my family. But there was also just some other stuff, which I don't think that at that era of 1983, 84, you know, I don't know who I would have gone to with the issues. I mean, I remember telling my mom when I was 12 that I wanted to kill myself or I was having those sort of thoughts. And they took my heavy metal records away. So Sure. It was anxiety, but it was also depression too. Can we talk about how you started writing a little bit? So when I was uh, 24, I was working at local newspapers in both North Jersey and Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. But I, I, I wrote a little essay and submitted it to a book compilation called Chicken Soup for the Golfer's Soul. And I, I was one of the 101 stories of strength and hope that got entered into that year's compilation which was a story about my father and his father playing golf together when my grandfather was going through dementia. But I, I wanted to basically make the retelling a little smoother. So I wrote it in the first person. So it was me and my father as opposed to my father and his father. I thought that worked better, which created all these problems because that book was a bestseller every single time they would bring one out. And this came out before Father's Day and there was a big kiosk of Barnes and Noble and lots of people that I knew had gotten it as a gift for their father and stuff like that. And they would call me up and say, just, I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. I had no idea that he had died or that he was <laughs> suffering from dementia the whole time. I'd be like, no, was, this is my grandfather. And then it would be like, 
oh, oh, so you lied. And I, I didn't think of it that way, but I guess technically, yes. I was essentially the Stephen Glass of chicken soup for the golf of soul, <laughs> right? But it was funny because you know, my parents had a book signing party for me and they bought a lot of copies. And I would sign books for like my aunts and my, my mom's hairdresser and stuff. And it was a big deal. And uh, I, I remember going to Barnes & Noble, one of those huge shopping centers that are basically in every single town in the Northeast. And, and I went there to buy a book, but there was also the kiosk of chicken soup for the golfers sold there. Now I went up and I pulled one of the books out and I was just like looking at it and I was waiting for the cashier to notice me looking at the book. <laughs> so I could be like, well, I've got a little something in this one. Like in my head, I was just like, he was going to be very excited. And, you know, asked me to do a live reading at Barnes and Noble and stuff like that. This is what I'm picturing in my head, how this whole transaction is going to go. Instead, my credit card got rejected. Yeah, I went to New York after that because I figured now that I had, I was a best-selling author, that it would be very easy for me to make the transition from Amber, Pennsylvania to New York City publishing world. I moved there when I was 25. So I guess this is about 1999. My first job was, I was a, a personal trainer in training at New York Sports Club on 51st and Lexington. That must have made your dad proud. Because mm, I got certified while I was in Ambler, because I was doing a lot of part-time jobs while I was stringing for all these local newspapers because they paid like you know $20 an article or something like that. So one of the things I was doing was I paid the, the $700 for my kinesiology weekend course. Super into just weightlifting and, and tanning and shit. So I remember when I was going to New York, and this is probably one of a good memory of my dad, where I was going up there single. And I don't know what prompted this conversation, but he was just like, well, you're not going to be single for long. You're a personal trainer and a best-selling author. Yeah. <laughs> but I lasted around three weeks at the, because he had to get up at 4 a.m. And I, I wasn't doing that at that point. So I ended up working for law.com as a reporter for legal news all across the, the country. I was making $23,500 a year at that job. And I thought I had it made. I was making seventeen five at the Conshohocken Colonial newspaper in <laughs> Pennsylvania. So I was just like, man. This is easy. I started out at the Gawker Media Company at a site called Oddjack, where I was covering gambling news. And I had gotten the job based off of just a test blogging thing that I had done. Where I was just telling a lot of jokes and the managing editor of Gawker at the time liked my writing. And I also had to pretend that I was super into poker. And I was not, but I completely snowed him for the job and I got it. And I lasted around six months before they shut it down. But I was in the Gawker Media universe at that point, And I continued to freelance for them for the next couple of years. And then my friend, Will Leach, was the founder of Deadspin and was leaving for New York Magazine. It was 2008. And he left and I applied for the job of editor of Deadspin. I did not get it initially because there were 13 other people that they wanted to look at first. And they, and they all turned down the job for various reasons. At that point, the people at Gawker Media were looking for some more established mainstream experience. But I eventually kind of uh, wore them down and got the job. And I, I started my path to basically just both ruining myself and that company. I'm going to basically explain to my children one day, you know, your dad circa 2010. 
was the number one sports blogger in the world, right? And um, can I look back at that now? It's like, man, I never wanted to be a sports blogger. <laughs> like, yeah. how did I become so good at it? That was not the writing career that I had aspired to, but mm. it was something that I had a knack for, mostly because I, I was very fearless and without morals or ethics for a lot of the ways that I would just get some of these stories. It's like looking back at a completely different person. My ability to compartmentalize some basic human dignity <laughs> was helpful for me to succeed on a level that I think most others didn't. I, I had this plotted out where if I was going to get this job, I was going to be uninhibited. And this was going to be my life and a lifestyle. And yeah. just see what happens. And, and yeah, drugs and alcohol gave me that career. I don't think that I would have been able to do that job without that artificial confidence. And I was an unstable guy. And that helped me be that person in publishing. Someone who was compelling and became just like a character. I think the one regret that I have about how I handled both Deadspin and Gawker was that I didn't recognize actually how much power I had to do good. During your tenure at, at Deadspin and then Gawker, were there some stories that you were particularly proud of that that you were? <laughs> I mean, because there's some, there's some real, you know, dogs, but there's also some like, great work that was some done. Great dogs. Great yeah. What a great way to describe it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to judge it now, honestly, because it's like the current climate considering exactly just like what is going on in the world right now. It's tough yeah. to look back at that stuff and say, would I do that again? And there's not very many editorial choices that I made at Deadspin that I would have made again. Yeah. I was there to purposely upset things. <laughs> I was there yeah. to do upsetting stuff. For me, it was really about notoriety. Did your parents read your stuff? Were they aware? Yeah. My father used to listen to 610 WIP sports radio in Philadelphia all the time. That was his news scroll. So he would listen to that 24-7 yeah. and he would call in he had a little nickname that he liked to be called Big Al from Ambler, and he would call in and he would practice what he was going to say to get on and stuff like that. So when so when that radio station would begin to kind of just talk about Deadspin stories that I had done, much better than Chicken Soup for the Golfer's Soul at that point, you know, just like he really thought I made it. If they were talking about me on 610 Sports WIP, well... Clearly, that's great. And he would call me every time that they would mention me. But I hated myself so much at Deadspin when I started to get that success. When GQ had done a profile of me and the writer uh, basically followed me around for three weeks and went to every bar that I went to and kept the tape recorder running. And but he tracked every single substance that I had put in my body that whole time. And once that story came out, like my parents like were just like, they're not hanging it on the fridge. It's not getting the chicken soup for the golfer's soul treatment. <laughs> what year was that? What year was that? 10, 2011? I think early 2011. It was like February 2011. It was an intense profile, like you know, 5,000 words pictures of me wow. and expensive clothing and all that shit. It was all about, is this good or bad for journalism? Asking that question. I'm the renegade and right. all that stuff. I'd become the yeah. guy that I thought I wanted to be, right? You know, and was getting rewarded for it, getting like some notoriety for it. And when that story dropped, you know, it really just created this, this problem for me because then I really had to kind of top myself all the time. And I felt like 
well, that is that is actually just like all I'm worth. If I am not the the guy who is doing stuff that he's not supposed to do and making people angry, then I have no more value. I'm not a good enough writer mm-hmm. to stand all on my own. I'm not a traditional editor. I'm not a nice person. No, you didn't see yourself as a nice no. person. You were like, "I'm this. I'm this yeah. guy. I'm like the cutthroat expose." Yeah, when, when like you know, and, and you know, off the internet, I was not. I was just a scared kid who mm-hmm. didn't know what he was doing. You know, eventually, I just I don't want to be that guy anymore. Oh hi, this is Matthew Phelps. We thought this was the perfect spot in the interview to tell you to make sure you listen to next week's episode in which we'll unpack who or what are and aren't our dads in recent pop culture with special guest star, writer, comedian and good-natured parent to a fictitious four-year-old, Carrie O'Donnell. We'll also be uploading another instalment in our Bad Dads anthology, this time about the perpetually enraged, exceedingly fertile Alec Baldwin, which you can hear by subscribing at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. In case you've already forgotten what I just said, next week we talk pop culture with Carrie O'Donnell and become a subscriber at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather for as little as $3. Now, back to AJ Delario. To bring it to the, the, the Hulk Hogan story, it's interesting to me because so much hung on it in the end. No one cared. He, yes, he had had a reality show at some point, but he wasn't like a politician or... But they made it seem that way. That was part of the suit was just like that this had uh, ruined his life in some ways. Look, I have obviously gone over that moment in time in every which way possible. And given what my position was and what the era was, the way that I had framed it was ultimately here's this meta post about the state of celebrity sex tapes. It was a 30 minute tape. I had whittled it down to 101 seconds or something like that, which was basically signed off by the lawyers who told me, this is where this line is. Bump up against it. Don't go over it. And that's what I did. But as you said, it was not the biggest story of the year. It was not the biggest story of the day. It was really something that became, I think, a little more well-known once Hulk Hogan went on Howard Stern's show and was arguing with the guy who actually filmed him. Which, I mean, the amount of people that had apparently had sex with Bubba the Love Sponge's wife, who were fairly notable, was up to like a dozen people. Apparently, this is something that he'd love to do. And he taped it all. Do you think that Hulk Hogan pursued you because he was embarrassed that his masculinity had somehow become a punchline? I think that Terry Bollea, which is Hulk Hogan's God-given name, was more concerned about the reputation of his fictional character than himself, that his persona was damaged in his mind. And that's his brand. That's his business. So anything that had basically damaged that, he needed to, to fix. And the only way he knew how to do that was through the courts. I hate to get frustrated by going over this trial again, but there was this one moment where his lawyers contended that a boy had come up to Hulk Hogan and said to him, I was looking to watch your WrestleMania tape, but this other tape came up instead on the internet. And I'm like, that did not happen. I was basically just like way too freaked out by everything and just stunned by how this was going to answer this properly. But the lawyers were trying to convince me that this tape was the thing that came up the highest when you search for Hulk Hogan. And I knew that wasn't wrong. This trial about the sex tape is what dominates most of his SEO from now on. Exactly. The idea that he was 
personally wounded, sure, I can buy that this was an emotionally distressing time for him. They sued initially in 2012. It got thrown out by a federal judge, went to the Tampa courts and snaked its way through that court system for around three years. The whole time that was happening, I was reassured time and time again that this would never see the inside of a courtroom that I was not going to be liable for anything. And I believed that up until I showed up to Florida, honestly, because it didn't seem like this was something that he was able to afford or we were able to afford. So how was it ever going to play out? Because I'm also just three months out of rehab when this trial starts too. I was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And so, you know, had I known that this was actually going to happen in February, I don't know if I would have gotten clean. It wasn't a good time for that. But my parents were living in Jupiter, Florida at the time. It's about 120 miles, I think, south of Tampa. And I remember having brunch with them and and one of my dad's old Italian uncles. And they were talking about the case. And it was just like, you don't have $115 million. Nothing's going to happen to you. Nothing's wrong. It's, just, it's a waste of time. And I guess that seemed to make sense to me, too. This was just mm-hmm. the show trial. And obviously, when things went south, they got very concerned. But that was probably between the two of them. Their worst moment as parents, I would say. They just became the shameful, scolding people who were more concerned with their own reputation. My dad at one point had called my sister and said, you're lucky your last name isn't Delario today. I know. Fuck that guy, man. Remember all the goodwill I talked about having compassion for him? Yeah, it's gone now once I brought that up. You could have both, right? So you had a confrontation at at some point. It wasn't even a confrontation. It was just a, I can't worry about your feelings right now. I have so much stuff that I can't process, can't afford, and just like unable to really just comprehend. The, The fact that one of your work friends basically doesn't talk to you anymore is not my problem. So yeah, we didn't talk while that stuff was going on. And uh, that was fine. It would have been great if I had some unconditional love there, but they weren't capable of doing that at that time. But I was also just like, you know, full of that desperation of just like newly sober, feeling all these things, dealing with that whole recovered memory abuse shit. And then when I got to rehab, I was in a acupuncture section. I was laying on the floor, getting acupuncture. And the way that she was kind of lulling me to sleep I was just like, oh, this reminds me of when I was with that sleep doctor and he used to kind of do this countdown thing. Just the tone of her voice was very quiet and soothing. And I was just like, wonder why he hypnotized me. Why was I being put to sleep when I was nine? What the hell was going on? Why did he take my shirt? And then it just all came back. Oh, here's exactly what has been poking at me for so long. This makes sense that basically something fucked up happened in that room and I've carried it with me ever since. And I want answers now. I went to the therapist and I was just like, do you have like a red phone or something like that? Who do I talk to to basically get this fucked up shit out of my head? What are you people doing? I don't want to walk around with this. Put this back in the fucking box where it came from. It was humiliating and horrifying. And it was just like, oh, this is what shame is. This is where this originated. And... And it was the 80s. Yeah, it was the 80s. You know, so just there, that stuff is prevalent then and nobody talked about it. And Unfortunately, when I had that thing come up where I was just like, and and look, I don't know for sure what happened. All I know is that basically something changed in me that has forever scarred me from that moment on. And most of it is just gone. It is inaccessible over to the point of basically for me just to remember feeling so terrified of going back to that guy's office 
that I was absolutely climbing the walls to just say, please don't put me back there. And my parents are completely just unable to even explain why I was there, who this person was, how long I went for, <laughs> what happened. And that sucks. That mm -hmm. sucks in a way of just, I can't even get closure from them who are the only people around, who are the only adults around. And you know, I, I had a really bad reaction to that in my 40s to the point where I got in a fist fight with my dad because they were just so not helpful with it and just blaming me. And just then not remembering all these years later, even when you're coming to them with a recovered memory of sexual abuse, and they're just like, doesn't ring a bell. Yeah. Can't help you. Sorry. You know, my mom's like, oh, I think our pediatrician told me that you were molested. And I'm just like, oh. that's new information. And then it turned out, no, she was just, just shifting it over to someone else again, that she completely made that part up. So I'm like, well, get me Dr. Gold's number if Dr. Gold said that. And my dad basically came back and he's just like, AJ, I don't think you're getting the dates right, actually. I think you were older when all that stuff happened. So, I mean, that probably didn't happen. Like, and he's saying all this stuff. And it's just building and it's building. And I'm like, just give me the number. Just give me the number. And it's just like, you know, I, I think it's fine. I just don't you to know you're wrong. He said that he said, I want you to know you're wrong about being molested. It was like now down to just like what he could remember and like trying to pull this memento type shit on me. And I just lost it on him. I just attacked and I physically attacked him. It was just like, we were yelling at each other in a way that was familiar because we'd yelled at each other like that before. We'd had these battles before, voices being raised, finger pointing and spittle flying. And then my dad's like, you know, you look like you want to hit me. I'm just like, I don't want to hit you. Do you want to hit me? And he said, yes. And then I remember him coming towards me and then I just threw him against the fucking couch and I had him up there and I remember leaning him against the couch so hard and he just had a hip replaced. I remember hearing that. I remember hearing that start to crack a little bit. And he looked at me and this is what he said. He's just like, I'm not going to let you hurt your mother. That's, that's what all this is about, right? That's the only way he can process this. And I didn't talk to them for a long time after that. And um, I started to basically try to kind of make myself not believe what I said before. It didn't happen, right? I can't get any answers to it. So it probably didn't happen. Why do I feel wow. this way? Why do I feel like it did? Am I making this up because I want attention? And I and I still couch it. I still say just I'm like it may have happened, right? I still had. I still give myself an out when it's just like every single part of me feels like it did happen. I hate the physical sensation that comes up when I talk about it. I get physically ill. I'm I'm still here saying just like, well, you have no proof. You know, I've talked to other people who've experienced that. Seems like we've experienced similar kind of responses and emotions about that. I took some EMDR stuff and tried to kind of nail that down. And that was helpful for a period of time. Took to my other therapist and just like my therapist basically just like, I'm a hundred percent sure something happened, yeah. you know? Yeah. And my mother still does not want to engage with me about that. And I asked her why. And she's just like, cause I feel so terrible about it. But she doesn't understand the fact that it's just, I need some sort of information and she's unable to be honest about it. And that's the thing that I don't get. I could tell you every single hour what my children are doing. We are invested. And I can't for the life of me imagine that at some point, all three of them going to a child psychiatrist at, at age of nine 
me not being there, not knowing exactly everything that goes on, it just doesn't make any sense. So it's just, there's nothing that I'm going to get out of that. I know something happened in that room that changed me forever. And that's all I have to go on. And that was the toughest part of my first couple of years of recovery was trying to heal and also forgive them. Yeah, that's what I like about ACA. And when I say ACA for people listening, it's, um, it's adult children of alcoholics yeah, and dysfunctional families. It's a great program because I think it helps people to understand the different forms of abuse that can happen in families that aren't yeah. abuse with a capital A. It's not getting beat with a belt. I mean, for a lot of people it is, but it helped me to understand the nuances and destructiveness of being gaslit by parents that just can't take it they can't hear their own children describing either acts that they did to them or that happened to them and that they didn't protect them from and so the defense is you're getting the age wrong you're 12 you weren't nine or this or that it's not that didn't happen but it's all the it's saying that without actually saying it I learned about what gaslighting was through the trial I started to like look at the definition of it because I've also been accused in of doing that to people and mm-hmm. I kind of ignored it because it was just like mm. well those people are crazy I don't do that until I figured out it was happening to me I really understood that yeah I did that to people too did it all the time that was my defense but you know it's it's so maddening I like the fact that you guys understand that in terms of just like what that does to the behavior at almost like a cellular level of just like all right now this is going to be my response that I have to unlearn. This is the behavior mm-hmm. I have to unlearn. Yeah. It's a hard process, but it's so necessary. And there's so much relief at the end, too. You know, it's the escape from that crazy making formula that I've, I've been accustomed to, you've clearly been accustomed to. It's just, you know, I hate the fact that it took so long. I'm just like, God, this could have saved a lot of pain 20 years ago. You know, I kind of went into it basically thinking, all right, you know, this is a good place for me to start looking at this stuff, you know. And I have to look at my dad. Yeah. Look at my dad and his behavior. I had to look at just like how kind of cruel he was at some point, you know, but it's, it's necessary. I think it helps me basically process so many things that I'd never, ever considered before. It's scary, very super uncomfortable, but I mean, I think that's where this work is supposed to happen. My Al-Anon sponsor is basically just like, look at your parents growing up. How did you think that they showed affection towards one another? And then just forcing myself to re-examine that. And here's what comes up. And it's all shitty stuff. Like, I remember we had to do this thing on Christmas. He wanted to start a family tradition where you wrote down what your goals were for the coming year, right? And goals for other people, too. What you want other people to work on with themselves, right? You know, the 1986 kind of just like, you know, Pat, Al, AJ goals like i don't know be better at basketball or be more confident i always heard him say that and that was one of those things where it's just like he was the guy who would tell you to have more confidence by shattering your confidence i remember he has on my mom's lose 20 pounds <laughs> classic and on mine it's just like you know for my mom so i'm just like yeah lose 20 pounds and i remember him pushing me to say that about her oh. No. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really cruel. I mean, it's cruel, but I mean, it was also because in his mind, he put lose 20 pounds on his, that it's just like, well, she's a lose 20 pounds too. He was a carrot yeah. and a stick guy, right? He would make comments about my mom, which was like, doesn't your mother look pretty today? Like here, here's the performance. I think there was a status 
that he saw in that too, which was just, he was, he was a status guy. I remember diners club like that. I, I, I drive a Dodge Stratus, that sort of thing. That's the blue collar golfer. <laughs> I mean, his country club was in Northeast Philadelphia. Just a piece of shit. It was probably big in the 70s. There's like dead deer laying by like hole number seven. Just unwatered <laughs> plants. Like would always be in jeopardy of going out of business. And my dad was like on the board there to try to keep it going. But it was he only wanted to keep it going because that's the only place that he would hide out. That's where he was comfortable. Eventually I moved to LA in I think uh, August of 2016. And you got a job there. And you accidentally got your girlfriend pregnant. <laughs> That's pretty much it, yeah. Julianne and I had basically just had a couple of flings between 2014 and 2016. And she was living out here and I was living in New York and dating other people and just never really got to the point of seriousness. And then I was moving out to LA to basically take this job. I was going to move into a sober living facility and we were going to just start slowly. And that didn't happen because at the time when I was about to move out, that was when Hogan's lawyers froze my checking account. So I had no money and no place to live and afford anything and no job. So we had sped up our, our, our courtship to where I was sleeping in her very small apartment. And trying to keep my sanity. It was so much. And I was trying to process all that stuff. So I obviously wasn't a great boyfriend at the time. Julianne describes it as basically just like the three months uh, cigarette break, basically. Because all <laughs> I did was basically just pace around her porch smoking and be on the phone. And during this mania is basically the only way I can describe it. She interrupted me after she came out of the bathroom and she's like, not to pile on. <laughs> but... <laughs> And I don't know exactly why at that moment it felt like the right thing to do to both of us to basically become parents at that time, especially me, but it was right. And it was the best decision I can make during a terrible year. I can't fully just look back at 2016 as, and 2015 as rotten because in 2016, obviously, she got pregnant and then 2017 is just like he was born. And none of that would have happened had I not gone through that trial. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about what it was like to tell your dad that you were about to become a father? My father would said this before my first son was born. He said not to be like him. He said that I would be a great dad if I didn't be like him without really any context for that. So I, I guess he knew to some degree exactly just or he was deficient, but I would still love to just hear his version. And uh, I think that would help me understand him a little bit more. Right now, I'm just left with a lot of bitter resentment still. And, and that's obviously what I can work on and I have for so long. But I think that he could have done more. We have that in program where you say that, oh, they did the best they can, and then that helps you heal. And I know he didn't. I, I know he did not do the best he can. I, I know he knows that as well. And I think that the opportunity to be better was there. Yeah. I don't know why he didn't take it. That's the thing that gets said in Al-Anon. They did the best mm -hmm. they could. It's to encourage you to move on to let it go. I kind of get irritated with they did their best because sometimes I'm like, well, no, they actually didn't fucking do their best. But so my sponsor was like, what if you said 
they did their best and it wasn't enough. Well, you know what I'd say? Because I, I, I had the same complaint over that. I was just like, they did the bare minimum. We were supposed to accept being powerless in these certain situations, especially when it comes to our parents in this capacity. And the best way for me to work through that is obviously through my children. And that's where I can both reparent myself and hopefully that rubs off on them. So I started doing this meditation where I sit and then I have a conversation in my head, obviously, with my nine-year-old self. And I, I say that you are welcome, you are safe, you are loved. So the actual act of basically adopting my nine-year-old self into my current family is what I try to do. And that helps me basically just, I, I think, make the reparenting as real as I possibly can. When you say you welcome him in the sense of like, you're part of, you're part of the gang now, you're one of my yeah, own children. Yeah, exactly. That it's just whatever stuff that I thought I was missing out on when I was nine and I needed from my parents, I'm welcoming you know, him into our life. That's it. You told us a story last time about your son. I think it was Ozzy at nighttime having a scary dream and the things that you do to be there for your kids at night. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah. So I guess it was around four or five months ago, Ozzy began to have nightmares where he would basically just be shadow on the wall or he would say that there's a monster in my closet. Like literally say that, that there's a monster in his room. And once he said that and he was scared, I sprung into action in a way where I was just like, this is exactly what I've been preparing for my whole entire life. I've never been more ready to handle this situation than I am at this moment. And I went in and I swept him up and I was basically just, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to wait here with your mother and I'm going to go in and get everyone out of there. And I'm going to go check the closets and I'm going to have all these other things set up. And I basically used some of his stuffed animals to be on guard. And I kind of delegated responsibility to them. Frosty the snowman is going to take the front door. And then I've got your dinosaur guy. He's basically guarding the windows. And then I've checked underneath the bed. I've checked underneath the table. I've checked behind the closet and the walls. We're going to put you back in. If anything goes, like, starts to happen, you come back. I'll come back in. We'll do it again until they're gone. And he's looking at me basically just being like, thank mm -hmm. you. I get it. It's yeah. like, like treating his nightmares as real things as opposed to just trying to kind of just tell him that they're not real. It seems to have just, that was the type of thing that I think I would have wanted at that point in my life. And I tried to kind of pass that along, you know. Good dad moment for me, I think, right there. But that's that little kid. That's the little kid that I'm protecting still, too. I will fail on so many levels during this parenting thing, but I think the sleep issues I'm going to be very, very sensitive to. That's going to be something that I'm going to treat very, very seriously. And I'm not going to dismiss, not going to lock them out, not going to just tell them that they're, they're not seeing things or, or feeling things in the way that they're supposed to or make them feel bad about it. You know, if, if I can do that, I, I will be okay. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp, and our technical producer is Chris Gellis. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Go to patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and email us your dad's stories at info at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orbis, and Helen Belgum. <laughs>